The Chris Sheeran Show, only on YesNetwork.com. It's another week. It's time for another caffeinated Chris Sheeran Show with Chris Sheeran and Doug Williams. It's at Chris Sheeran, yes, and at Doug Williams, yes, on the Twitter. And don't forget, you could listen to this. You already are. But every week, you can get it downloaded instantaneously to your mobile device by subscribing at the iTunes. And don't forget, you could also subscribe to the Yes Men. That's Doug's other podcast with our good buddy, Lou DiPietro. So since we last talked, the Giants and Jets kept going in their separate directions. The Giants keep going up while the Jets continue to descend into the depths of hell. Um, And baseball. The playoffs rolling right along. Uh, the AL is set. ALCS is uh, going to begin on Friday between, and if you had this at the beginning of the season, extra credit to you, the Baltimore Orioles, Bucktober, and uh, the Kansas City Royals. Wow, the Royals and the Orioles. The, the great thing, Doug, about the American League and the ALCS, the winner will be in the World Series for the first time since 1983. Or 1985. That's pretty cool. Right. There's no team that you're, you know, expecting is there every year, you know, a San Francisco Giants or a Cardinals or a Yankees, you know, a team that you're just expecting to be there every year. And that both of these guys, if they win, will be a great story. And um, it's really been amazing because it's a testament to the fact that a sweep can be exciting, mm-hmm. considering both those series were incredibly exciting and they were sweeps. Um, the ALDS, both series are over. And also the fact that Atmosphere matters. I mean, both of those cities, Baltimore and Kansas City, brought everything. All nine innings that those stadiums were roaring. And I really think that matters. The cities like Detroit that are in the playoffs every year that are expecting a World Series might get a little complacent. They don't have the atmosphere. Atlanta. <laughs> yeah, Atlanta's just like that. Terrible atmospheres. Just nobody shows up. Yeah, it was, it was rocking at, at both venues. And, um, you know, think about where the Royals were in the AL wild card game. John Lester on the hill for the A's, down 7-3, heading into the bottom of the eighth. And they win that game, and they're on their way to the ALCS with the Orioles. From the files of, you can't predict baseball, Susan, uh, the Royals and the uh, the Orioles are on their way to uh, the promised land uh, at the ALCS with one more step to go to the World Series. Now, the Angels, on the other hand, let's talk about them. Let's talk about the A's. Let's talk about the AL West, which was pretty dominant throughout the year. First and foremost, it was the A's who got out to their ridiculous start. And it seemed like they like jammed on the brakes and the Angels floored it and they just went right by. And this is what I'm talking about. June 5th, the Angels were 31 and 28. That's three games over 500. Uh, for those of you who can't subtract like myself. And the A's were 37 and 23. On September 28th, the end of the season, the A's were 88 and 74, finishing the season from that point on June 5th, 51 and 51. And for those of us in the sports industry and any other mathematical equation industry, that's 500 to you and me. The Angels on September 28th finished 98 and 64, the number one seed in the American League, 10 games in front of the A's, 15 game difference from that June 5th date. With their counterparts, the A's in the division, and the Angels were 67 and 36, 31 games over 500. I think it's safe to say, Doug, that the Angels and the Nats, the two 
hottest teams in baseball heading into the playoffs. One of them's out. One of them's on the brink. Right. And uh, you and I talked about this before the show, but we hope that either the Nats or the Dodgers, I think, gets in. I mean, the Dodgers for Mattingly's. We talked yeah. about that last and week. And then yeah. the Nats because they're exciting and different. But, yeah, I mean, the, the, the Angels are an interesting team, Chris, because – their roster is fairly similar than it has been in years past. And past that was two or zombie three years. Josh Hamilton, right. by the way. He, Josh he Hamilton missing the ball yeah. by six inches at least on every swing yeah. and miss. I thought if they had Garrett Richards, they would have gone further. But looking at that team on paper going into the playoffs, I wasn't wowed by them. I was wowed by the record that you just mentioned. But other than that, they look like the Angels of years past that have been so disappointing. And what you want in the playoffs and what we've seen from the Orioles and the Royals, the successful pedigree, comes from hitters, not home run hitters, not necessarily just speed guys, guys that are a full package of a doubles hitter, a guy who can hit over 300. That's what the Royals lineup is full of. Situational hitters. Right. Too. Guys that can get the job done, put the ball in the gap, get a rally going. You know, a rally is the key to the postseason, even though a lot of teams aren't doing it right now because not many runs are being scored. Which I love, by the way. We're not seeing these huge grand slams or these huge three-run home runs. We're seeing, you know, three-run innings that make the game out of reach. So the lineup of the Angels focused so heavily on Josh Hamilton, Albert Pujols, and Mike Trout. You want to have that one through nine lineup. You you can't have a Chris Iannetta in there. You can't have a C.J. Crone playing his first uh, postseason in there. So I really wasn't wowed by the team. I'm not shocked that they're out. Okay. Well, you know, you look at the baseball season. It's kind of like War and Peace, which is 1,225 pages. How do I know? I looked it up. I didn't read it. Uh, Tolstoy, uh, I will conquer you at some point, just not right now. That's a lot of pages for me. Now, that's the baseball season. A five-game series is like reading the cat in the hat. It's like 61 pages, and before you know it, it's over. And for the Angels and the Tigers, it's over. You know, you battle the whole season, and three games later, you're playing golf. It's crazy. And let's talk about that Angels-Royal series, okay? I just want to break it down a little bit. Game one. Vargas, and we talked about Vargas before we went on the air, okay, last week. Neither one of us thought Vargas was going to pitch well in that game. Two earned, six innings. His season up and down, 11-10, and 10, 371 ERA. But check this out. Last four starts of the season, he was 0-3. The team was 0-4, and his ERA was 9. Again, you can't predict baseball. And this is why I love baseball so much. Because you could stink for a month as a starter and then go into the playoffs when the spotlights are as bright as they are and you shine. And he did. He kept his team in the game and he outlasts, didn't get the decision. Weaver didn't get the loss, but he outlasts Jared Weaver. Yeah. And a perfect example of what you were just saying is John Lackey. I mean, John Lackey was throwing 88 miles an hour yeah. two weeks ago. They were talking about his velocity. He had a dead arm. He missed a start for that dead arm. Last night, he just does what John Lackey does. You're seeing 92-93, really overwhelming off-speed pitches. And he just seems like he's ahead of the hitters in the postseason. Like, he has that confidence factor that puts him ahead of everybody else. And that's a perfect example. The regular season really does not matter once you get in. It's just the getting in that's the hard part. Uh, I mean, look at Moustakas and Eric Hosmer. Both had terrible, disappointing seasons as the the, the cream of the crop and young talent in the Royals organization. They've gotten to the playoffs and done their job. You think anyone's going to remember their regular seasons if they win the World Series? No, they're going to think these two are prodigies. 
Who cares what they do in the regular season? As long as their team gets in the postseason, just, then they'll deliver. Just like Perez is 0 for 5. And exactly. He's 1 for 6. Nobody remembers the 5. They just remember that 1, the game-winning hit that got them out of the AL wildcard game. or uh, Yeah, and into the ALDS. And now they're in the ALCS, for crying out loud. Game 2 of that Angels-Royals series featured two two-year starters, Jordano Ventura and Matt Shoemaker. Shoemaker was 8-1 and one in his last 10 games, 10 games, 9 starts, with a 166 ERA, 16-4 on the the season finished with an ERA just over three. So Shoemaker had a tremendous season for the Angels. Ventura, now listen, he must have heeded Pedro Martinez's advice because that kid was pretty much lights out in that game. Seven innings, just one earned run. And remember, he gave up those two huge runs in the AL wildcard game when he was brought in in relief by Ned Yost, who was Yosting at the time. But you know what? And this might be crazy. But maybe that experience, giving up those two runs in that big spot, prepared him for that start even more. Now, look, he might not have even gotten there. And Ned Yost would have looked like the biggest goat jackass in the world for doing that. But I think maybe that prepared him for that start where he was able to have some confidence to go out there and be who he is in you know, seven innings and one run with the Angels. There. Yeah, the 100-mile-per-hour fastball doesn't hurt either. I mean, he, his stuff is dominant. Yeah, that, that, that doesn't hurt. It, it was just a boneheaded decision, I think, to bring him out of the bullpen. And I think what's funny, when you watch the celebration when they did win that game when Salvador Perez hit that hit, um, you saw Jordano Ventura freaking out on the field, just all over his teammates in the middle of the pile. And uh, you could tell he, he was happy that he, you know, did not get the loss, was not the goat of that game. And once that happens, the key to being a pitcher is if you won the game, who cares? Yeah. No one's going to remember that I came in and, and, and gave up two runs, you know. So uh, I give the credit to him. He's a young kid. He's got terrific stuff. And it seems like he's showing some serious mental toughness here. Uh, does anybody come up smaller in the postseason than C.J. Wilson? Game three. Okay, big time game for the Angels, trying to avoid elimination on the road, and this guy consistently comes up small. You want some numbers to back up my claims? In the postseason, eleven games, ten starts. This guy's one and six with a five two six ERA. In ALDSs over his career, in three starts, one and two with an ERA of six and three quarters. The Angels owe this guy thirty eight million. Over the next two years. Think about that for a second. 18 next year. 20 the following year. What has he done? What warrants that money when you continuously come up small in the postseason? I don't get it. If you or I stunk at our jobs, we're not getting a raise. We're getting fired. See, I, I just don't get why these baseball teams, especially, and all these Yankee fans wanted C.J. Wilson on the Yankees when he was a free agent. What, what do you say now? I mean, I'm not saying the guy is a bad pitcher. He did have a good season. I think he had 17 wins this year. But at the same time, you got to perform in the postseason, man. Look at Alex Rodriguez. What did he do in the postseason until 2009? And what was he known for in the postseason before 2009? His numbers extraordinary, and this was before all the rumors and the accusations came out, and the ele- uh, you know the alleged steroid use. Um, but he was known to fail in the postseason. Then 2009 came along. We know he had a great postseason run with the Yankees there when they won the World Series. 
But if you continuously come up small, how do you get rewarded? How about Clayton Kershaw, Chris? I mean, I don't mean to change the subject from C.J. Wilson, but a lot of times, and again, C.J. Wilson, you're exactly right about. He's one of those starting pitchers that shouldn't, shouldn't be paid as much as he is. But he makes that money because, I guess... You're a solid lefty starter, which is a rarity, and and you hope he does better in the postseason. Now he hasn't, but I feel bad for for pitchers that like Clayton Kershaw, who's made what five postseason starts, maybe I, I don't have know it off the top of my head, but the reporters are already in his face saying you've really struggled in the postseason. You know, how, before last start, he had a four two ERA, Chris, in the postseason, yeah. and reporters were still asking him why he struggled so much. And I do think it it does have to do with the fact that you're asked about it. You're asked about it. You're asked about it. The postseason's big enough. It's a big enough stage. You you don't need to have to worry about every reporter asking you about why you have such a bloated 4-2 ERA in the postseason. So it is true, though, that these athletes, these terrific regular season athletes, are going to end up being judged by their ability to perform on the biggest stage. Well, in the postseason, and I'm, I'm not saying he does play what 18 games against the pot, or you know the team plays 18 games against the Padres every year. I mean, he's not going up against the bottom of the barrel in the postseason. That's the thing. Like you can't look at a batter's av- like if a batter like Derek Jeter. We talked about this a couple weeks ago in 1996, and I brought these numbers up. He, he batted 250 in the World Series. He went up against. Two Hall of Famers and a guy that's probably going to be in the Hall of Fame shortly. Glavin, Smoltz, and Maddox. Maddox and and Glavin are already in, and Smoltz is on his way in. Let's be honest. I mean, so you take a look at that, and at 250 as a rookie against those three pitchers, plus the Braves had a great bullpen back then too. It all gets so... Competitive, and you know, you get the best pitchers, and you get the best lineups. Something's going to give. I, I don't know. I can't explain why Kershaw is has that ERA. I mean, because the guy in his starts, to, you know, he had a big start against the Giants. Let's just throw it out there. Towards the end of the season, the Giants were still alive for the NL West, and Kershaw went out there and just mowed him down. Yep. It's not technically postseason, but it's still it's a pretty big start. It's not the postseason, but it's a big game. And doesn't it make you appreciate people like El Duque and Andy Pettit, Chris? Because those guys did not have nearly the stuff that Kershaw has. They were but they went out in October, didn't matter who it was against, and they dominated. And, and that goes to show you that competitive nature that those yeah, two guys had. But, yeah. I mean, Clayton Kershaw has faced – how many times has he faced the Cardinals? A lot, right? Yeah. He faced them last postseason, too, and they hit him hard. How can you can you still dominate every time out against a team that's seen you not only in the regular season multiple times but also last year in the postseason? They know what you're featuring. It's no secret. And so you really have to be, if you think about it, you're facing these guys time after time after time. And in the postseason, they're, they're looking for every pitch. And you, you have to be special every time out. Yeah, and another factor, and look, I'm not making excuses, but another factor is the guy who's behind the plate, you know, the home plate umpire. You, you got to, uh, again, no excuses, but maybe you get the corners with this guy. You don't get the corners with that guy. Maybe this guy gives you, you know, your slider, you know, inside the way you like it, and the other guy thinks that's a ball. So when you have a different guy behind the plate 
for your different starts, you know, it, go, it varies from time to time. I, I know it's minuscule. I know it's not the biggest thing in the world. But you put that factor and the factor that J- Doug just mentioned, seeing, you know, the Cardinals seeing him as many times as they see him and breaking him down as many times as they've broken this guy down. When you get to the postseason, it's just a different animal. It's a different animal. And everything is under the microscope. And I don't care if you're Cy Young or Sandy Koufax <laughs> Or Bob Gibson, even though they dominated. <laughs> I don't know what it is. It, it, it's he's like an enigma. I, how could you be that dominant and then be in line for the NL MVP and NL Cy Young, and then go into the post? What do you give up? Seven runs? Yeah. In game one, I don't get it. I just don't. I don't know what it is. But the Dodgers are still alive for now. I, I don't know when you're going to be listening to this, but they're still alive. Uh, the Cardinals are one win away from the uh, from another NLCS from coming out of nowhere <laughs> and getting back to the damn NLCS. Um, and then the other one, the Giants and Nationals, the Giants are a win away. The Nats staved off elimination in game three using the long ball as their helper. Um, if you Your gut feeling, the Dodgers are down 2-1 at this point. The, uh, the Nats are down 2-1 at this point. Do you think either one of these teams could come back? And do you think Kershaw gives up another seven runs and another start? I think the Nats can come back. I don't think the Dodgers can come back. How you're, you're, That's the true test of mental toughness, Chris. Clayton Kershaw is about to go back to where he lost last year. This is where the Cardinals went to the World Series. They beat Kershaw in the NLCS last year. And that's how they got into the World Series with the Red Sox. And Clayton Kershaw is supposed to go back there where that all happened, where he got crushed last time. I mean, he got crushed in L.A., but same team. He's supposed to go in to St. Louis and pitch a gem. I mean, that's a lot to ask of the guy. It is. But, but this, is the, this is where he'll earn his money. That's, that's where your competitive fire is supposed to come out, and you're supposed to not let that happen again. What, do you, what, is, he supposed to, what is he supposed to do? Go to the mound and say, well, I lost here last year. I just got belted around in L.A. Um, we're going to lose. No, you can't do that. You can't have that mindset. I mean, I guarantee you he doesn't have that mindset. But at the same time, I just – you know what? I don't want to dun them both, but I'm dunning them both. I think it's we don't want it to happen, but it's, I think we're going to see Giants Cardinals again. I think. In the I, well, I hope you're wrong because I think that's a snoozer. As I know, we we both agree on that. But the fact that the Nats just beat Bumgarner—granted, it was on a sack bunt fr- right. freak play—but right. who else are you scared of in that rotation? Who else do you not think the, the Nats can beat? I mean, we know on paper that they look like the better team. We've known that for a while. But Well, the lineup in itself, I gave you that stat downstairs uh, in the first 91 at-bats. Uh, and I heard Jody Mack say this on MLB Network Radio. I'm not going to take credit for this. And he got it from a tweet that somebody put out there, but he couldn't remember who tweeted it out. So this is like from – this is <laughs> like – Six degrees six of degrees Twitter of, separation. Yeah, exactly. But uh, – the, the stat was unbelievable. Nelson Cruz had three RBI and one at bat, and the Nats had three RBI and 91 at bats, you know, up until their 91st at bat as a team against the Giants at a point. Uh, that's ridiculous. And with that lineup, you know, you just scratch your head like, what is going on with the Nats? Because as you said, who else do you fear in that Giants rotation? But at the same time, the, they, only, the only loss is Bumgarner. I know. 
<laughs> so tell me that. It, I, it doesn't make any sense. And I think if the Nats win tonight, they have the series. I don't think that they go back to Washington and Sam Fran wins. That'll be tough. That'll be tough for the Giants. The Giants need to wrap this up in game four. Um, but I wouldn't done the Giants in a game five. They've been there, done that. I mean, it's I – w- you know what? I, I want to see a game five because I think that obviously would be must-see TV. It would. It would definitely be must-see TV. As far as the Dodgers go, I, I just – I don't know why the Dodgers – get into these you know they have such a great season their their offense clicks and all of a sudden they get into the playoffs and everything goes south i, I don't get it everything is exposed i mean it's so interesting it's the most interesting part about october you're going to see what needs to be exposed about every team and the dodgers bullpen has been exposed i mean brian wilson is not a great setup man they don't not they do not have a great bullpen they he have could, jp howell only to face the beard. yeah he could shave the beard no one fears the beard anymore um i heard someone tweet last night they said you know i i think it was brian costa who uh or costa i'm not sure how you pronounce it but he's with um the wall street journal and he tweeted i i only wish we could have seen a dodgers tigers world series only to see which bullpen would out implode the other <laughs> <laughs> Which is true because there's such good teams everywhere else, but that's what postseason baseball does. It exposes your weakness. Yeah, under a microscope. Uh, yeah, it's just it's it's terrible. It's awful. It's awful for the fan bases, but it also goes to show you know you could spend as much money as you want on a baseball team. That's not going to get you a World Series championship. And the Dodgers have the biggest payroll in the league and they're on there. They, they very well could be on their way out. I really wanted to see a Don Mattingly Buck Showalter world series, but I just don't think it's in the cards. How about that stat, Chris, that Lester, uh, the teams that acquired Lester and David Price didn't win a playoff. Yeah. Game. And you know, as soon as that happened, I'm glad you brought that up and you reminded me, but when that trade, when those trades went down at the deadline, everybody was putting the A's and the Tigers in the ALCS and it's the Royals and the Orioles. So put that in your collective pipes and smoke it. <laughs> One of my grandmother's favorite phrases to say, put that in your pipe and a smoke in her broken English. Uh, God rest her soul. Anyway, um, that's an awful segue to get to football. I, <laughs> I didn't know what I was doing. So don't, you don't have to bother doing hey, the segue. Hey, your grandma would be proud. Yeah, right. Yeah. Big Yankee fan too. My grandmother was. You could you could ask her. I knew the Yankees would lose. They lost already, so I would walk in her house and I'd purposely ask her about the Yankees just so she'd curse. It was one of the best things in the world. Um, and <laughs> she was the only ninety year old Italian woman on the planet who was off the boat, broken English, never got her driver's license. She'd be sitting there watching a game, and a guy would be like 0 for 4, and as soon as he struck out to go, you know, that 0 for 4, she would be in her chair, throw her hand up in the air, and say, they should have sent him back to Columbus. (laughs) What other 90-year-old knew the (laughs) triple-A team of the Yankees? (laughs) So, yeah, I miss her dearly. Um, She was... uh, she was a joy to watch that team with and grow up. She's, her and my grandfather were the reason uh, I was a Yankee fan. So rest in peace, uh, Grandma. It's going to be what? January? Oh, three, 11 years already. Oof. Anyway, on to football we go. Um, the Giants, as I said, keep going up. The Jets, 
keep going down, and everybody's pointing the finger at Gino again, and we all heard the news. He missed a meeting. He went to a movie because he was messed up on the time change. But as I brought up with Doug before we came up here, uh, everyone has a cell phone, and I know Gino is no exception, or an iPad or something, some device that when you change time zones, as soon as you take it off airplane mode, but let's be honest, on a charter, you keep your keep your phone on <laughs> yeah you don't even have to turn your phone off on no, commercial no, flights you now. don't you don't so as you reach each time zone your phone will change the time so as soon as they touch down and let's just say for the sake of argument gino's phone was off and he turned it on as soon as he turned his cell phone on it would have been west coast time so rex ryan as you so brilliantly brought up in the office, isn't telling the team, okay, we're going to meet at 10 o'clock New York time. <laughs> it's just not happening. I, I, I don't get that excuse. I think that was like, that was made up to, to, to make him kind of not look, you know, bad for just blowing off a meeting. But I think that makes him look worse, don't you? Yeah. Uh, yeah. It makes, <laughs> it, it makes him look less, maybe less guilty, but just more stupid. Exactly, and I don't. I don't mean to insult him. I'm just saying that what it, what the situation looks like is that he can't figure out a time difference, uh, and it, it gets confusing when you're in like London and it's a six hour difference, and you're trying to communicate with someone who's six hours ahead and you're behind. Like that is, I guess, that's a little confusing. But L.A. and and New York, you know, West Coast and East Coast, that's, that's pretty easy to figure. It's three out. hours. It's three hours. But your phone is to the time where you are so that would probably be when the meeting would occur I, my head's going sideways let's not talk about, I, I, I knocked him down let me build him up a little bit and i know everybody still wants to point the fingers at geno smith but if you watched any part of that game in san diego which was a debacle let's be honest <clears throat> all facets of the jets were just uh, uh, atrocious offense defense special teams everything let, let, let's start with the offense and geno he and Michael Vick, who, who started the second half, were combined, combined, 12 for 31 for 74 yards and an interception. Vick didn't matter. And here's why. One of the strong points of the Jets, let me, let me strike that. The two strong points of the Jets are supposed to be their offensive line and their defensive line. Their defensive line is a good defensive line. And their offensive line, to me, I mean, if you look at the guys who are on, it's Pro Bowl-esque. It is. Anchored by Mangold. So to have Geno Smith go back and not be able to make his plant on a three- or five-step drop or seven-step drop before he has to start running for his life, and I know he's that type of quarterback, but he shouldn't have to be doing that with that offensive line. You can't really point the finger at Geno. At one point in the second quarter, Phillip Adams had an interception for the Jets in the end zone, picked off Phillip Rivers. They were up 7-0 were the Chargers. They were going in for another. Adams intercepted Rivers. I think it was 12 minutes and change left in the second. Adams had as many receptions as every Jets receiver. Geno Smith was one for seven at that point. One for seven after two possessions. That's not good. I get it. It's not. But let me ask you this. And I'm going to throw this out there to you. Where are his weapons? After that interception, on the first play from scrimmage, 
Chris Johnson puts it on the ground, fumbles. Chargers go right in 14 nothing. Who, by the way, who made it 14 nothing? The guy I had on the bench for my fantasy team, Antonio Gates. Oh, baby. This guy starts Larry Donnell, who doesn't have a catch after he goes off with three touchdowns. So he starts himself. So I started him, and I ended up losing in spite of that. Anyway. But I'm going to read off the names of the weapons that he's supposed to have. Chris Ivory, nine carries, 44 yards. Chris Johnson, seven carries, 24 yards. That's 16 carries for 68 yards if you're keeping score at home. Once the Jets go down 14-0, they pretty much abandon the run game. Pretty much. Uh, and you could, you could tell by the numbers there. So let's analyze for a second, Mr. Williams, <laughs> the weapons with the Jets receivers, their arsenal. San Diego is shaking in their shoes, I'm telling you right now. Jeremy Curley. Jason Morrow, Jeff Cumberland, Greg Salas, David Nelson. Let me hear it. All right, so here's what I'll here's what I'll say to you, Chris. Though, <laughs> all right, <laughs> I, I I'm with you. I understand. Jets wide receivers are, are 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 bad. Their tight ends are nothing to worry about for a defensive coordinator. But let's let's think about for a second what what a good quarterback does. What a really above average quarterback does. Say an Eli Manning per se. He goes into this year without Odell Beckham Jr. Ruben Randall has never proven himself to be any better than a Jeremy Curley. You do have Victor Cruz just like uh, He also has 10 years of experience. Right, I understand that. But what a what a a good quarterback does, young or old, is, is makes something out of the talent, the NFL quality talent receivers that he has on his team. Geno Smith has not done that. He didn't do that on Sunday. He hasn't done it all year. He had Eric Decker for a period of time. That didn't work. That didn't really help the team. So what I don't understand is why why people kind of. Say, well, Gino doesn't have any weapons. Well, would you have said Larry Donnell was a weapon going into this year? No. Eli Manning made him one. Gino Smith has to go out, find receivers that he feels comfortable with, and, and start making completions. It's really not that that's hard. The, that's the key, the accuracy. Yeah. His accuracy is awful. But at the same time, I'm not going to kill the kid when he has no time to throw the ball. And the time thing is a different argument. I mean, the, the time thing is, is a valid thing that Geno Smith has no time to deliver the football. Maybe the Jets need to take something out of the Ben McAdoo's book and say maybe he just needs to complete some short passes, get, get some dump offs, up. get his confidence up, and, and develop a rapport with these receivers because right now – you know, Jeremy Curley's been okay in the past. You can complete Listen, passes I, to I'm him. I'm not dumping on, like, Jeremy Curley. I think he's a good NFL receiver. Jay Samaro has a lot of promise. He was the number one tight end coming out of college. Uh, Cumberland, he's a serviceable tight end. Salas is a good, you know, slot receiver. And Nelson's, you know, they're all decent. They wouldn't be in the NFL if they weren't good. I'm not saying that they're terrible. But I'm saying you put, you know, you don't have a... You don't have a bona fide number one weapon, okay, to take the pressure off maybe your secondary or tertiary receiver and get them open more. You don't even have that breakout tight end or you're not using Amaro the way you should be using Amaro right now to maybe get more focus on him to open up some of these guys on the outside. 
I just want to see, like you said, maybe they have to simplify something. Maybe Morningwig has to sit down with with uh, Geno Smith when he makes a meeting, and tell him, you know, listen, we're gonna we're gonna dial it back a little bit because their schedule. They got the Broncos this yep. week, then they got the Patriots the following week, and so much for the Patriots being dead, by the way, and Tom Brady's career being over. Give me a break, will you please? We stop. Everybody sees the Patriots get throttled, and we brought up the numbers. I'm not going to go back into the numbers from last week. <laughs> like I said, Tom Brady's not dead. And now, now you know who you have? You have zombie Eli and zombie Tom, <laughs> and, and they want your brains, and they're coming to get you. But back to Gino really quick. I get the criticism. I know he stunk last week. His accuracy was off. You know, Even when he did have a receiver open – that's got to get better. But I, I, I was sitting there with my brother-in-law, and we were watching the game. And it was in the second quarter. They went three and out. And he goes over to the sidelines, and his head is slumped over. His shoulders are shrugged over. And I just turned to my brother-in-law, and I said, Jeff, he doesn't even want to play. I'm not – you know, I'm, I think I'm pretty good at reading body language. And it, that's not a leader, that's what he has to get through his head. You can't put that out as the leader of the team. You are the quarterback. I don't care if you're a rookie. I don't care if you're a second-year guy. You have to take the reins, and you have to. You can't get too high. You can't get too low. You have to show the rest of the team, I got this. Yeah. And that's not what Gino was putting out there. That's not what the vibe was. The vibe was, I'm getting my rear end kicked. I'm just going to go pout on the bench and put my head down. And you can't do that as the quarterback of a football team. And I will say, thank God for the Jets that they're not traveling to London for a game because Gino would be so late for meetings out there. Oh, he would be hours late for any meetings. Um, I will say also, the recipe for success for Geno Smith and the Jets offensively don't get out to a bad uh, deficit, right? Because as you saw when you read off Chris Ivory's numbers, he had five yards of carry. Chris Johnson had three and a half. You know, it's not terrible. If you can establish the running game early, fine. But when you're down 14 nothing, you're not going to run the football. But I mean, in the second quarter, you can't get away from it that soon. I, I mean, agree with that. You can't just completely throw it away. You have to keep going to it. You have to try to establish it to keep the defense honest. And the Jets, they didn't do that. And and by the time the second half rolled around, the Chargers were up 21 nothing. They got the ball to start the third quarter, and bang, they're up 28 nothing. Then you can't run the ball. No, I agree with it. You have less than 30 minutes left. you got to start throwing. And, when you, and then you had Vic in. And, and Vic, you know, he used to be this mobile guy. He used to get away from the rush. They were planting that guy. Yep. And let's not forget, I know you were at the Giant game. You didn't see it. But the Jets' first possession, Geno Smith, and, and who knows? He might – and I'm not making excuses, but the guy could have had a concussion from the hit he took. I, I forget who it was. But the Charger defender launched himself with his helmet, hit Geno like up high on the shoulder, like right under his chin, and his helmet flew off. I mean, he got destroyed on that play. Now, I don't know if that had anything to do with the rest of the game and the way he played. Maybe he was, you know, like come inside on a hitter or a hitter gets hit in the head. The next time he goes up to bat, maybe he's a little tentative. Maybe he had some happy feet. Maybe he didn't want to get hit like that again. But that establishing hit on Geno might have had something to do with the way he played. Neither quarterback really looks like they want to play. No. It was amazing. They had a shot of both Vic and Smith on the bench later in the game. And both of their heads were down. Memo to quarterbacks out there all over the place. It is your job in that position 
to project a winning attitude no matter what. You're the captain. You're, you're the general. You're the field general of this team. And I don't mean to break it down like I'm in sixth grade, but it's, it's obvious. You have to project that, hey, guys, we're down by 14 in the fourth quarter, but we're going to come back. We're going to win this. And speaking of teams that do that. Segway. There it is. Now we're back on track, Doug. The New York Giants. And we'll do this really quick. But down 20 to 10. And it was after that 74-yard touchdown that Ryan threw. It was a swing pass that went for a touchdown. And, you know, you could, you could hear the groans all over the tri-state area from Giant fans. And what happens? Eli Manning? Ah, no worries. I got this. This is why, you know, you'll see some emotion from Eli after a touchdown. You'll see, like, if somebody drops a pass, he'll shake his head, put his hand on his hips. But he never gets too high, and he never gets too low. He projects that. Don't think the defense isn't, you know, during the game looking at Eli to see what his body language is saying. I'm surprised that no one on the Jets went up to Geno and kicked him in the rear end and said, yo, you can't do this. Eli is the exact polar opposite. And if, if Geno wants to learn anything, there's a guy that plays in his building that he could learn a lot from. And that's Eli Manning. Down 20 to 10. They come back. They win it 30 to 20. The last four possessions, Doug that the Falcons had on offense, and they had three hundred and almost 380 yards total offense. The last four possessions, the, the Giants' offense was great, comeback, whatever. I want to talk about the defense. Perry Fuel's squad, a little shaky earlier in the game. That 74-yard swing pass that we talked about that went for a touchdown to cap their scoring. Their last four times they had the ball, twice the Giants held them to Zippo. Okay, and they held them on a fourth down with 440 left. Shades of Mike Smith in the playoffs a couple of years back when he kept going for it on fourth down and not making it. And he did it again. You know, I have to say maybe I agree with Mike Smith a little bit. Fourth and one in that situation. You don't want to rely on your defense who hasn't been able to stop Eli the past two times they had the ball. So, yeah, I get the decision. But you had three timeouts. You could have punted it. Who knows what happens, whatever. But the Giants really impressed me, and Odell Beckham proved on Sunday that he could be the big-time catalyst for this offense. Yeah, I mean, he's a big part of this offense now because he gives you another threat. We, the Giants, when they're really good, have more than just two wide receivers. They, you know, they always had more than just Victor Cruz and Akeem Nixon. Right now, offensively, they look good. The problem is Rashad Jennings is going to miss some time. He's probably going to miss time until their uh, week eight bye. Uh, they're going to rely on Dallas coming, right? They're going to rely on Andre Williams and, and Peyton Hillis and see how it works out. But you feel confident if you're a Giants fan more now than ever in terms of their passing game. You've had the emergence of Larry Donnell. You've had the emergence of Odell Beckham Jr. Who is so blistering fast. He adds another dimension. You have your big, tall possession receiver, Ruben Randall. You have your, uh, slot quick quickness guy, receptions guy, and Victor Cruz. And now you have your speed guy in Odell Beckham Jr. And, Eli Manning's not going to complain about that. And their defense played really, really well. I yeah. mean, in the second half, their defense was locked down. And it's a mixture between their front seven playing really well. Um, McLean has been terrific at middle linebacker. Oh, my God. Terrific. He's been great. He's and, been absolutely phenomenal. And you have good protection from from Prince and from DRC. Yeah, and, DRC's earning his money, too. 
I mean, Julio Jones had a good game against DRC, but Julio Jones is that type of freak gonna, athlete you just have to limit. Gonna, that, you see the one hand? You were there. You yeah. saw the one-handed catch. It was, so, uh, the yeah. crowd went silent. There's, but there's nothing you could really do when that the, the tribute that I would give to DRC is if you can limit to Julio, Julio Jones to no touchdowns, then yeah. you're doing something I, right. He Listen, the first couple of weeks he had some issues, illegal contacts, you know, that, that Cardinal game. One of the, I think the, the – the, the touchdown that that gave the Cardinals the game, three consecutive penalties, uh, and I think he had two of them, illegal contact and maybe holding. So he had a rough go of it there, and the Giants, of course, started 0-2. But everybody who thought that – and I, you know, I had my doubts. Listen, if you watch the preseason and you watch the first two weeks of the regular season, you were scratching your head like, ugh, am I going to be able to go through another season like last season? But – I got to give Perry Fuel a lot of credit. I got to give McLean a lot of credit. He's stepping in big time, huge with Beeson out. You know, and even Mark Herzlick, he's holding his own on the outside. And Jaquan Williams is playing well. I, they got a lot clicking. Doug, they just have to stay healthy. That's the key. And going down to Philadelphia this weekend, that's going to be a war. You know, and you would expect a shootout to occur. Because look at the Eagles every week, 37, 34, 31. They're, they're, they're putting points up, all right? The Giants' defense is going to have to come correct, and, and they're going to, you know, they got Macklin, they got Foles, they, McCoy. Where's McCoy, by the way? He, he's my running back. He's one of my running backs. He hasn't done anything this year. Remember the lifetime, the, sh- the shelf time for running backs. Yeah, I know. I mean, but I guarantee you. He'll rush for yeah. He'll have two hundred total yards against, against the, Giants. the Giants. Yep. <laughs> so he's not coming out of the lineup. I hope he doesn't score or get any yards this week. But you know, it's that fantasy rule where you, you start a guy against your your team and he goes off, and you're like, it's bittersweet. You just have that Verve song in your head the entire game. But you take the good with the bad. You, you hope for Lashawn McCoy to score four touchdowns and have three hundred all-purpose yards, and the Giants win by three. I'll, I'll sign for that any day. Uh, but it doesn't surprise me after the last two weeks that the Giants come in, beat the Falcons the way they did. The Falcons were hurting, too. The Giants needed to win that game, especially with the game at Philly and then hosting the Cowboys the following week. Uh, the Giants' schedule, like the Jets' schedule, is not easy <laughs> uh, until, up until their buys. Uh, both teams uh, have it rough. The Jets are under the gun, though, with that 1-4 and four record. And the Giants are now 3-2 and two over 500, just a game behind the Cowboys and the Eagles. So this game this weekend down at Philly is ginormous as well. So there you go. That's going to wrap it up for this edition of the Chris Sheeran Show for Doug Williams. I'm yours truly. And we will see you next time. Uh, how about one more shout-out? Brielle, how you doing? <laughs> always, always love a Brielle shout-out. Brielle Saracini, of course. There, there, what is it, the third time? So she could tweet that out. The third time we've given her a shout out. Yeah, third yeah, or fourth, I think. Yeah. I think she has the count at home, so she could tweet it out when when she's done listening. And uh, yeah, so there you go. And by the way, just a really quick story, something that put my uh, faith back in uh, youth sports over the weekend on Saturday or Sunday. I'm sorry, I went to see my ten year old nephew play soccer. I really don't know too much about soccer. I'll be honest. Uh, basically, you know, I watched the World Cup. That's about my knowledge. I'll be honest. His team's up 2-1 in the second half. Under like three minutes to play, he commits a handball in the penalty box. Somebody kicked it really hard, and he was trying to get out of the way, hit his hand, 
penalty shot. Team ties it up, 2-2. Now, he's 10. A lot of kids, and, and my dad and I talk about this all the time. You and I have talked about this. You know, everybody ties, so nobody's feelings get hurt, and everybody gets a trophy, so there's some complacency out there. My nephew, Matthew, restored some faith and hope in me in that competitive spirit. On the ensuing kickoff, Matt took the ball off the kickoff, dribbled all the way down the field, and scored the game-winning goal. On the next kickoff, immediately, I'm talking 10 seconds after the penalty kick went into the goal, his team had the 3-2 lead, and they won it 3-2. And to see him running up the field, like hitting his chest, it just... It wasn't showing the other team up. It was that personal redemption that you don't even see in grown professional athletes. He's 10. And I couldn't have been more prouder of any kid on the planet than I was as proud of him when he did that. Yeah, it's good to see. It's like... It it's was like when awesome. you're a kid, you know the trophies and the orange slices are still coming. But if, 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 <laughs> yeah. if you can really, you know, try your best to win the game, that's a good sign. Yeah. And I wish that some professional athletes weren't complacent about money or e- things like exactly. that. Exactly. You know, we've been talking about that for the past month. And going up there, I never thought in a million years that going to watch my 10-year-old nephew would restore some faith uh, in youth sports, you know, and the, and, the, and the process of growing up with that, you know – complacent, I don't have to win attitude, but not him, not Matt. Put the team on his back, went in there, scored the game-winning goal, and it was fantastic. So congrats to Matt's soccer team and to him too. And that's going to wrap up the Chris Sheeran Show for this week. For Doug Williams, once again, I'm Chris Sheeran. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening, everybody.